Hi folks, Henry Sledge here. I get asked all the time if I thought the Pacific miniseries did a good job portraying my father. Well, I think they did a great job, and here's one thing I loved. The excellent rapport between Sledgehammer and Snafu. You assholes are gonna miss cleaning out oil barrels pretty soon. You're gonna be humping up some fucking hill. Or across a beach, Japs pouring shit for fire. Pissing your pants, crying boo-hoo. And wishing you were back here with nothing nasty you but to scrub oil out of drums. Why don't you grab a brush? Give us a hand. Fuck that shit, I scrub drums for no man. Can we take a break? Do whatever you want, this ain't my detail. I was supposed to dump y'all off here, then report back to the CP. And why are you still here? I like to watch the new guys sweat. It doesn't start out that way, but after a day or two in action, we see it really develop. I think it really gets dialed in after they come across the airfield the second day on Peleliu. Saw you reading last night. My Bible? Writing too. Ain't supposed to write shit down, you know. Gives the Japs valuable intel, they find it. Guess I won't show it to him, man. Gotta smoke. Thanks, Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer. I like that. Jesus Christ. Don't worry, we got a nickname for you too, Bill Laden. We call you Ball Peen Hammer. It's like a little hammer for a little man. Uh, all right, Snafu. Shit and ass. Fuck up. <laughs> little joke from the little man. Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's up? What's up? What's up? Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite Don's video is cutting out podcast. I'm sitting here watching my... I was my... wondering if that was just me. No, it's my computer. I may have to go no video for this episode and just keep you going because my, my video is turning green for some reason. I don't know why. Um, yeah. I didn't know what the hell was going So, on. anyhow, we're just going to... Instead of Mesmer, we're just going to keep on going, keep on running down the line. People can still see you on the live stream. And uh, most people listen to the podcast via the audio. Anyhow, so why dwell on it? How are you doing, friend? Doing well, man. Doing well. As always, glad to be here in the seat for another episode of World War II Awesomeness WTSP. You know, that was an interesting idea you have, which is presenting you know some of your ideas or thoughts or answering people's questions about how you feel about the HPS Pacific, because that's where a lot of people who've, you know, were introduced to your father before the before they actually sure. went out and read the book. Um, give us another little snippet, a little tidbit, something about the um, the miniseries or the production of or how you got involved that maybe um, perhaps we've talked about before and some of the new listeners haven't heard or maybe you haven't discussed it with us yet. Sure. Um, well, are, are you talking about a tidbit of something I really liked, or, or just, just whatever? Aspect of it? Just any behind-the-scenes stuff that you know a fan of the show may be interested in, whether it's about production or how you feel about it. just anything, really. Yeah. So the uh, if you go to part seven uh, where they attack the bunker, and um, you have the part where which and with the old breed that was a pretty cataclysmic moment for the sledgehammer story and the arc of the sledgehammer story, because 
that was, you know, they, they, they have the, the LVT come up, fire a couple of rounds into it, and they have a flamethrower, which was Walmack from Mississippi, standing by to douse with a flamethrower. And as right after the LVT had fired its, its 375 rounds, point blank into the side of the bunker, a Japanese soldier appears in the coral dust. Um, he's, he's got his arm cocked back to throw a, a grenade. Uh, and, and my dad had his carbine leveled on his chest and started squeezing off shots. Um, and of course, they all subsequently shot the guy, and he falls dead, and the grenade goes off at his at his boots. But my dad was the one who started squeezing off the initial shots and killed him. Um, and it was bigger, a very evocative scene the way my father wrote that, and with the old breed. And so, you know, I naturally assumed that when they filmed that scene that they would film it exactly that way. And in my own mind's eye, I'd kind of played out many times how that would look. Um, but little did you because, know how Hollywood really works. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then too, I'll add something else. So, you know, in with, for our listeners who are familiar with my dad's memoir with the old breed, the bunker assault was on D plus 13, 13 days into the battle on Ingecebus. Well, that's what I was, was little, that's what I was um, going to ask you too, not to, stopping your tracks but sure when you're watching the miniseries you just think oh that's just part of the main assault they're just walking through the jungle came across this but it, that particular yeah, mission like east or west road on peleliu yeah yeah so yeah and so i'm like cool we're gonna see another scene with those great amphibious tractors near those radial engines and you know they're gonna go across the sound like they did and those corsairs are gonna be you know dive bombing the place getting ready for the the troops to debark from the lvts and go ashore well as we know, you just see the bunker scene as if it's, you know, they're walking up. It could have been East Road. It could have been West Road. Uh, I think actually Bruce McKenna, in a conversation with me, told me that it was West Road. Um, and I asked him, I said, well, why are you guys not doing another landing scene? And he said, Henry, it's just very simple because it costs money. an obscene amount of money to start those LVTs up. Every time we do that, it just our costs go sky high and for yeah the and, plus, scene we did, and plus to be fair to them as someone who spent two three days on a, on a film set one little misstep by an actor one little misstep by a driver and it's cut reset gotta roll everything back put more fuel right. <laughs> into them and just yeah it could be and plus most a lot of those shots you think okay here's a simple shot we're just gonna have some landing craft land well, they usually shoot them from multiple angles, so they got to reshoot. You know, it, they may have to exactly. shoot one scene six times to cover it in every angle, and so yeah, it's a lot of money. And and we kind of discussed this too. Uh, the perfect example is the P thirty eight wing when Lucky comes across Gibson. He's in the cage, and Gibson starts talking about how you know he was on a work detail, and they start getting a strafing bomb run, and they jumped in the slit trench, and he could feel the Marine breathing on his back. Yeah, saying the, um, you know, praying. And if anybody's read any of the books, A Helmet for My Pillow or even Strongman Armed, I think he relays that in the third person. Um, that didn't happen to Gibson. That happened to Lucky. But it made more sense to combine those stories into one scene because at a certain point, it, the story becomes more important than who it happened to or who said it. <clears throat> so are you yeah, going to film an entire scene where... You got a bunch of Marines out in Slitch Trench and, and pay to have 
you know, graphics of airplanes coming in just to recreate that? Or do you make that scene where Gibson's, you know, now they have the ability to show the effects of war on a Marine. Because if you go, not to go too far off in the corner, but it wasn't until like the sixth or seventh time that I saw that series that I realized that Gibson plays more role than just that. When you're watching the first time, like, oh, here's Gibson. He's only been in one episode. No, he's the guy shooting the cow on the train. He's right, the, right. So as you watch it more and more, you realize, oh, he had a more bigger role in the show. It just seemed like a background character so they can get to that point where they want to show, here's a normal kid from the United States after strangling Japs in the woods and after shooting, he finally broke. Yeah, Cape Gloucester, yeah. And so here's a way to take two important stories, combine them in one in one scene and get it done with eight and a half minutes of an episode instead of creating that entire storyline of scene of Lakey working on the, you know, work crew and then mm-hmm. digging a trench and then jumping in and that. And I, I you know, so <clears throat> Bruce told me the deal on the, on the LVTs and the costs. And, but he, I remember very well the day he called me and told me that the director wanted to shoot that scene a little bit differently and not have my dad um, just shoot the guy I you know, with his car being the way he actually did in his book. And he said <clears throat> what the director wants to do, because at this point, we've already had several hours of, you know, gratuitous violence and shooting and killing. And so people, whether they intend to be or not, are going to be somewhat desensitized to it. So what the director, uh, who's, it was either, it might have been Van Patten, Timothy Van Patten, who was the director for that episode, or Carl Franklin, I can't remember. But but Bruce McKenna told me, he said, what, what we think the director wants to do is have your father kill that Japanese soldier with a bayonet. But out of respect for you and your family, we want to know your thoughts on that. And I protested pretty vehemently, you know, because Don, we've talked about it on this show. I mean, I remember my dad telling me that, that he never killed a. I asked, did you ever kill a Japanese with your bayonet? And, and he was always really definite in saying, hell no, I never let him get close enough to me for that. Um, because they loved bayonet fighting and took every opportunity to do it. And they were really good at it. So he said, I wasn't going to give them that chance, but, but um, but I, you know, he, he said, look, I, and I told him, I said, it's not a moral question. It's not a, you know, I know with, I went back to my brother and my mother with that and they were both kind of horrified. It just really the, the visceral aspect of killing a human being with a blade instead of shooting him. Well, that didn't concern me so much as just knowing factually my dad's story and knowing that he had said he had never done that and I, I was really vehement with Bruce about look you're altering you know you're altering such solid source material don't yeah. do that and and he was you know and again my purpose of doing this I mean everybody who listens to our show knows that I love the Pacific I'm a huge advocate of it I speak about that all the time um, but you know you did ask that question so I, I want to give you something but um, he said, I, when I told him I was very opposed to the idea of shooting that scene where my dad kills the guy with a bayonet, he said, let me go back to the director. We'll talk about it. And, and I said, well, you know, have him call me if you want to, I'll be happy to tell him myself. Yep. Uh, and that never happened, but you know, they, they compromised. And so we got what we got. Yeah. They got him shooting him with an M1. Cause I'm looking at the scene on YouTube right now. So they got rid of the car beam and put an M1 in his hand. Yep. And, uh, yeah, because uh, he had been blown off the top of the bunker. Of course, Layden took grenade fragments, and he's lying there 
blinded, you know, and my dad and Sledge is with him right there. And then the Japanese soldier comes out of the bunker. Yeah, but again, to your, you expressed it very well, Donnie, but it comes like I had to get past that. Well, they didn't exactly do it play for play, movement for movement the way it really was. And you, you have to get away from that and divorce yourself from that. And what it comes down to is telling the essence of the story. Yeah, but the thing that kills me, the most egregious thing to me, is the fact that it wasn't until I met you that I learned that your father didn't carry a revolver. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, the he revolver carried a 1911. Thing, we've, we've, we've talked about that. I, I, I almost think it's a carryover. I almost think it's, hey, there's a scene in Band of Brothers where the local sheriff sends somebody a revolver. So let's do the revolver scene in the Pacific as he well. He sends it to Floyd Talbot, who's yeah. played by my buddy Matt Leach. Yeah. yeah. And so I, maybe it's a little Easter egg or kind of a, a wink and a nod. But the fact that he had, well, maybe they wanted to differentiate him from everybody else who's carrying a Colt 1911. I, I don't know. I mean, I had, I was really proud of the fact that I had and still have the 1911 automatic that he carried through uh my grandfather sent it to my dad when he was on pafuvu after it was after peleliu before okinawa he my dad he may have used a 45 on on peleliu but not the one that my grandfather sent him that came to him in the mail after peleliu so he carried that oh good i've got your video now um he carried that through okinawa but i have that you know it's one of my prized possessions as you know and um I had sent pictures of it to the people, to the Hollywood team. I described in great detail. Uh, so they had all that information. And then when I saw that scene with that model 1917 45 revolver, <clears throat> I was actually watching an editor's cut uh, before the, the miniseries actually aired. And I was really upset. I'm going to be honest. I, I reached out to Bruce McKenna and was really uh, pretty angry about that. But, Again, that he said, look, Henry, that was not my decision. Yes, you did provide us with the good information. That, that was not my decision. Um, he alluded to the fact it might have been Dale Dye's decision, but I don't know. I mean, I, I met Dale Dye here just this last August at the 20th Symposium of the Band of Brothers Actors in, at the World War II Museum in New Orleans, and he was very cordial. Um, we talked very briefly, but you know, I didn't ask him about that. That's water under the bridge. And I mean... That's one of those things, Don, like we've talked about, is I have watched the miniseries and become closer to it and, and really grown to love it for what it is. It, artistic license, man. I mean, it's just part of it. Yeah. I don't know. To me, though, it would be different if, okay, he got issued a forty five. we're going to make a revolver. But the fact that your grandfather sent it to him, that to me is a little like, okay. But. I, I don't know why they did it that way. But, you know, look at like to your point of you can only have so many characters, so you have to kind of make. Yeah. You have to roll different things into certain, you know, like it was Doc Caswell who stopped my dad from taking gold teeth in what would have been part seven. Okay. When they were up in the ridges, um, Doc Caswell was the one who did that. He was a good friend of my dad's. They stayed in touch for many years after the war. Um, but they, you know, we don't see Doc Caswell because they can only develop so many characters. Yeah. Right. So it, we, it's actually snafu, you know, sledgehammer, what you doing? Don't, you know, and then and the scene is great. I love the way they did it. You yeah, know, because in um, that scene, it's almost like, here's Snafu, who's kind of been made out to be this hard-ass, you know, the war's kind of changed him. He's the old salty veteran, and here he is sure. having a moment of reflection or maybe even reverting yeah. back to, hey, I don't want him to become the horrible thing that I've become and that all these other guys have become, so I'm going to 
try to put a pause on that. Exactly. Spot on. But speaking of movies, um, you wanted to uh, talk about a particular movie tonight. Yeah, well, we don't have to make it all about that one movie. You know, I'm, I'm, so I just started reading James Holland's book, Big Week, okay. you know, about the massive bomber offensive um, in early 44 um, to not only attack German aircraft production, but also really take a swipe at, at, um, at their fighter strength uh, to try to establish air superiority before, you know, we invade the continent in June of 44. Um, but in thinking of that, it's, you know, as you know, Don, I like our, like our buddy, Jeff, I share that passion for World War II airplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> one of the iconic ones, of course, being the great B-17 flying fort. But, um, you know, I just remember 12 o'clock high with Gregory Peck just being such an iconic uh, World War II movie with airplanes. Because I know as a kid, um, anything, anything that had World War II airplanes in it just... Yeah, I was captivated by it instantly. Well, I have a confession to make. It's not the first time I've made this sort of confession on the show. (laughs) But because I am dedicated to the show and to show prep, I have not seen 12 O'Clock High up until 211 minutes ago. (laughs) That's right. I found it on YouTube, and I watched it before the show. I just Did you watch the whole thing? Watched the whole thing. Awesome, And when when you texted me saying, I'll be a few minutes late, I'm like, perfect. I can watch the last 15 minutes. I'm I'm watching on my phone with earbuds, and I got to say, for for anybody who's never experienced this, and to be honest, I really didn't pay attention until just now. Right. Old school movies that were shot on legit film, they transition to the digital format effing wonderfully. I'm watching this on my phone, on YouTube, in HD, and it looks cleaner. When the movie was made in like 1949, 1950, was it? Yeah, it was was not long after World War II. The quality, like I said, because it's shot in film, Mm-hmm. There's no computer graphics. Like, yeah, I mean, you go back and watch the Matrix, the original Matrix now, and it looks so dated. Because, but because there's no computer graphics, they had access to all the original. It looks like it was shot in black and white two days ago. I mean, the transition, with the exception of the actual war footage at the very end of the movie, but the, the first 200 minutes of this, or 185 minutes of this movie. It yeah. looks like it was shot on an iPhone yesterday. It, the film transitions into digital perfectly, with the exception of it being not widescreen. But you don't feel like it's a dated movie. I will say, for those who pay attention, um, especially when the when the movie starts kicking off, I know most movies aren't shot in sequence. Maybe this one was, but you can definitely tell in some of the tertiary uh, actors' parts um, because film to that level was still a relatively new concept. You could tell a lot of the guys were classically trained um, stage actors. They had more of that stage acting <laughs> movement and uh, dictation. Some of the earlier guys, like when they first show them after the first run and they're going to uh, interrogation, and the one guy who saw his buddy get shot in the head, his, his movements and his acting was a little stage acting, but uh, after a while, that's a damn good movie. Yes. Uh, and perfect thing is I literally just finished it, so it's fresh in my mind. First question I have for you as a young tot, yeah. how did you 
have the attention span to make it through the first hour and 45 minutes of that, 145 minutes of that movie? Well, that's a really good question. So as a kid, when I saw it, it was tough because think about it now. As a kid, when I would see these movies, I wanted to see you know, aerial action. Actions. I wanted to see scenes of them in the cockpit with their helmets and goggles and all that flight gear stuff, you know. And if I didn't see that, man, then, then it was like, oh, I'm not getting what I need here. So as, as a kid, you know, when 12 o'clock high, it was a little bit of a hard sell. Um, oh, wow. 1964. It was a little later than I thought. I thought it was 1950. It was, it was, wow. It took quite a time. It took a little bit of time to draw, make that movie. 19, it was made in 64? 64 to 67. Wow. I would not. Are you sure? Uh, I didn't think I'm it was looking. That. I'm Rotten Tomatoes. 12 o'clock high. Unless this is a, this, unless this, is a, this may be a remake. That may be the series. Oh, uh, yeah. Hold on. The movie was made in the 50s, I thought, because Gregory Peck is really. 12 o'clock high. Yeah, 1949. That makes more sense. There you go. Yeah, there you go. So you're thinking of that series. No, I just typed in 12 o'clock high. You would think on Rotten Tomatoes they would show the movie first, but not. But apparently not. But anyhow, yeah, so, and for those who haven't seen it, I strongly suggest it. The whole thing's on YouTube, uncut, uncommercial, perfect. But. I guess maybe because they used, and it says right in the beginning, no, no spoiler. It says in the beginning credits, air combat footage is recorded was recorded during combat. Footage was obtained by the U.S. Air Corps and the German Luftwaffe, mm-hmm. and so maybe because they had limited footage, they saved it for the end of the movie. But for the first three quarters of the movie, you see, you hear the guys going on these missions come back. They don't show any action. It's all content. It's all dialogue. And for someone under the age of 13, um, maybe people, we had longer attention spans back in. Definitely. I don't think you, I don't think you can make this movie today in that same format. No, you could. I mean, um, a couple of, and a couple of little quick, uh, points of, uh, trivia, the scene, one of the scenes that's where, you know, Gregory Peck's up there. General Savage is up there. Um, given his, his pre-mission briefing and what have you, um, it shows a couple of scenes of all the guys sitting there in their flight gear. Somewhere in that group of young pilots and navigators and officers is Burt Reynolds. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's he was great. in that scene somewhere. Um, and I think I've seen it, but it doesn't show him for very long. And then another little interesting tidbit, and I, look, I didn't know any of this till I started kind of digging up some stuff on the movie, looking on Wikipedia. So a lot of the scenes were filmed in Europe. Yep. Uh, obviously, the aerial combat footage was, you, you've already given the goods on that. The scenes where it shows the camp, like oh. early on when it shows the B-17 come in and crash land, yep. gear up, the scenes of the, <clears throat> some of those camp scenes were filmed down near fort rucker in alabama really yeah and when i after i read that i went back and watched the movie and i'm like yep man that looks like an alabama tree line right there there's just something about it that kind of grabbed me now Uh, but yeah as we said last week i'm fresh off of actually i'm still in the middle of reading a wing and a prayer and so when i started watching this movie i'm the the acronyms they use everything's spot on and they right. make reference to the gentleman who wrote the book, flew on one of the missions with the 100th Bomb Group. And in the book, they're talking about how the 100th Bomb Group kind of had a bad reputation. Um, 
they've been known for being kind of ragtag. The guys really didn't follow protocol. They kind of did their own thing, constant leadership change. And so when I started watching this, I heard 918th bomb, 918th bomb group. The 918th. I'm like, 918th? I've never heard that before. Well, so on that note. I was like, is that a real bomb group? So I did what people do nowadays. I got on the old Google box. Okay, so you're going to go ahead and say. No, go ahead. You can hit it. Well, no, I don't want to steal it from you. Well, I came well two things. I came across one. I shared it. I just shared it on Facebook. Now I wouldn't buy one of these things because they're outrageously expensive. But there's a cool little story. Um, guy whose father flew a B seventeen. He uh, loved this movie so much that he, in 1993, he reached out to Fox and got the license to recreate the mug. <laughs> and you can buy this mug. You know the, the Robin. Does Jeff have one of those? Uh, he possibly could. Um, I think I see it when he's in his study there. I posted the website where you can buy this mug, but from I what from what he was saying on this website, they got the 918th because apparently the true bomb group was the 308. 306. 306, yes, and they called it the it Hard Luck Squadron, it. and if 306 times 3 is 918, yep. and so that's where they came up with the 918th. Yep. Because I got the thing, I was like, well, maybe they changed it to protect the those the, the innocent, you know, because there's a whole aspect of this movie is about bad leadership, you know, people shirking their duties, and so I guess you would probably want to go with a fake bomb group so you're not throwing real people under the rug when it came to that. Yeah, of course, because think about how many vets are going to watch that movie. Well, that's a good thing, too. Good point you bring up, because when I was watching the, the final half of this movie and you're seeing the combat footage and you're seeing... The guys jumping out of the planes and some of the Germans getting shot down. It's like, wow, man, 1947. Not too, you know, not too far off from the war. Or 1949. A little rough to think that you're showing footage of real people dying <laughs> in your movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's the scene that, it, or it may be in, uh, it's not Memphis Bill, but the, the footage that a lot of it, showed Robert Morgan and his, and his guys um, and there it, it was actually used I think in multiple documentaries but um, you see a scene of a B17 getting hit and it falls out of formation and begins to spin and you hear the pilots in the airplane that's filming it you hear the guys in the cockpit talking just like they're just talking to each other like you and I are talking right now yeah. and you hear one guy go B17 out of control three o'clock and you hear another guy go, okay, I seen, I, I just seen two guys come out of the Bombay. And then you hear one go, okay, there goes another one. And then you hear a third guy go, come on, you guys, get out of that damn airplane. And, it, you know, you just, and that just, I mean, I'm just like hooked on those words. Yeah. Because think about it, Don. I mean, that's, the, these, those are probably buddies of theirs. Now you're talking about the, the original Memphis Bell? No, well, <clears throat> I'm talking about the footage. Yeah. Yeah, not it's not Hollywood footage. It is actual footage, and you hear the real air crew. Yes, hey, I just seen two come out of the bomb. Bay. I on, don't guys, get out of there. I don't want to run it for you, but I believe yes, the video footage is correct. But I think when I did research on that, I think all the voiceover overdubbing was done in the movie studio afterwards. So the actual audio you're hearing, the radio chatter, I don't think is real. I think it was re. Okay. The guys did it. The, the original guys did it. They did it in a studio phone. Doesn't mean they never really said it in real life, but that. In sure. that particular incident, 
Um, I bl- I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I looked into it because I think Jeff and I talked about it. And I think the actual voice overdub for those missions, which makes sense because they didn't have any, a lot of audio recordings back then of the comp- the go with the video. That's why when you watch a lot of those World War II shows and you see video, most of the audio you hear the gunfires put in post production because sure, oh yeah, there's yeah. you know the signal corps guys who are running up the Peleliu with with your father and company, they don't have sound equipment, <laughs> microphones. They're just shooting. It's all video, no audio. And so that, yeah, that would kind of make sense as well. I love, but but to go back to 12 o'clock high, man, those were just, all right, everybody, hold your positions. You know, you know Gary yeah. Pack's trying to get them calmed down. And, and I mean, you've got FW-190s and 109s. Just, I love the way those 109s, that shows them, they would just come in just doing a slow roll firing mm-hmm. as they would come and they would pass underneath the B-17. That, that is just so badass. You know, one of the things that Robert Leckie says in his book, and your father may have made reference to it too, is how embarrassed they were when they would be in these pep talks before a mission, before landing. Oh, we're going to go kill some jobs. Those buck tooth, scary little bastards. They ain't no, no for the United States Marine Corps. And Robert Leckie definitely was... He would make comments about how embarrassed they all were to sit around and listen to ignorant nonsense. And in Wing of a Prayer, Henry H. Crosby kind of says something similar. He's like, we're sitting in this briefing, and here's this retread, which is great. Turn- I, I'm so glad I read half this book before watching that movie because a lot of the jargon carries over. And a retread is someone who served in World War One, who served in World War Two, but was too old to participate in a combat role, so they... A lot of office desks, commanders, briefings, and all that. And Harry Crosby was saying in Wing of Prayer how they could tell this guy was a retread because he was saying all oh, the the Jerry's, the Krauts, they're going to come flying yeah, he's using through. All the tropes. Yeah, and he was like, no one in the hundredth bomb group referred to these guys in any sort of pejorative. Pejorative, not because they were above that, but because as you were just saying, which is why it reminded me. They flew right through our formation. They were so brave and such stellar combat pilots and the risk that they would take, yes, they're shooting at us, but the risk they would take flying through our formations, flying through machine guns to achieve their mission that they had too much respect for them to call them a Jerry, a Kraut, a Hun, and those things. And so that's an interesting carryover as well. It, is is, it seems like the guys who actually do the, the combat and the the fighting, whether it's in the air or on the ground, they tend to have more respect for the enemy than the brass who put together the orders to send them out there to do the fighting because they don't experience that hardship firsthand, at least most of them. Yeah. There there were just so many, oh, man, the, the aerial footage. God, those 109s coming in just one after another, man, just rolling in on them. And can you imagine <clears throat> how... As we all know, claims were grossly inflated by by everybody, Japanese, Germans, Americans, you know, British. But can you imagine being a waste gunner, you know, back there in the the rear section, the rear fuselage section of a B-17, you know, trussed up in all that cold weather gear with a 50 caliber, I guess they were twin 50s. Were they twins or singles? I can't believe I have to ask I that. think Hold the on. waist gunners were single. I think the tail gunner and nose gunner were doubles. But you You're right. Yes, the waist the waist gunners were singles. Can you imagine a 190 
a Focke-Wulf 190 or a BF 109 coming in on you at 300, 330, 340 miles per hour, trying to hit that. You want to talk about leading your target. <laughs> I yeah. Mean, <clears throat> I mean, the challenge of that and, is mind-boggling. Well, not only that, but as we spoke of last week, prior to reading Wing of the Prayer, I didn't know the difference between in the high squadron, the low squadron, and the middle squadron. And so not only are you shooting at this guy traveling past you at 150 mile an hour, you're trying to do it and not shoot down, <laughs> make contact with your fellow B-17s or, you know. And that had to, when you look at the box formations, and, and like you just said, you had high squadrons, you had low squadrons. I mean, it was all very, <clears throat> very choreographed and an immensely complex process into itself. It's something that doesn't get talked about, but I'm thinking, man, they're with all those tracers flying around from, you know, every, what, every B-17 had, what, 13, 50 caliber machine guns or 10? Two waist gunners, a ball turret gunner, a tail gunner, a nose gunner, a top turret gunner. And then, as we learned from Mr. Harry H. Crosby, who said he didn't use his because only had about a 10 degree worth of movement, the um, navigator had his own. Yeah, cheat gun. Yeah. So that's a lot of firepower, um, but what I, and on that same topic and my cover's ripping off this book, which sucks. I'll have to get some tape on a wing and a prayer and 12 o'clock high. These are both great movies and books content to read and watch, to learn more about the fundamentals of flying in a bombing pattern. Cause in both this book and that movie, they go through great detail to explain how important it is and why they fly in those formations. And the short answer is because of what we just said, the amount of guns per ship, when you're flying a tight formation, you basically have a bubble of lead. Once you get right. out of that formation, you still have your guns, but you no longer have the guy above you and the guy below you providing. And so they fly in those patterns and those three different levels to try to almost create a bubble of protection. Exactly. Yeah, the defensive formation. It, it actually, of course, I'm only like 37 pages into Big Week by James Holland, but it, it's, you know, at first they thought, well, okay, the B-17's got 10 or 13 50 caliber machine guns. You know, it's bristling with armament. Um, it should be able to, you get these things in a box formation, they should be able to defend themselves. Well, they quickly found out that they could defend themselves, but they were still going to suffer horrific casualties. They're slow, by comparison. Right. So you had to have the P-47s, the Spitfires, and the P-38s, and the P-51s escort them, which, and they were constantly refining these tactics. And I'm, I'm not as solid on the facts of this as I want to be, because like I said, I'm only 37 pages into Big Week, and it's the, that's the first Air Corps book I've, I've read in quite a while. Um, cause I've mostly been focusing on Pacific stuff. And then, as you know, I read, um, company commander, uh, that I finished up and then another book before that on the second infantry division. Um, so this is the first air Corps book I've done in a while. And it's just awesome to be back into that, but, <clears throat> um, tactics were constantly being refined. And so when they began to get the range capacity, you know, they had P 47 to start putting drop tanks on them. You know, we all know the story of the 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 world beater P fifty one when they put the fuselage tank in it and then also put drop tanks on that and had the Packard Merlin in it and just created this amazing you know war winner 
right there. But you know, you had you had P-38s and you had Spitfires flying escort, and and tactics were always being adjusted and refined. And I mean, so it, at first it was like, well, you know, the bomber pilots, as you can imagine, if I was a bomber pilot, I want to look out my cockpit window and see those lightnings and, and, and jugs and Mustangs like right off my wingtip or right up above me. But they realized that if they would release the fighters to go in ahead of the bomber stream to suppress enemy fighters, that that was even more effective. It's just that the bomber guys didn't really like that. Yeah, because you didn't want to feel like you're left yeah, out you, in the wind. Exactly. You feel alone. I mean... And on that note, Don, imagine if you're, you know, if we're in a B-17 and we're crossing over the border, the German border, and you've got P-47s, which, I mean, next to the Corsair, the P-47 Thunderbolt's probably my favorite airplane of World War II. And that's saying something because I like them all. I love them all. But next to the Corsair, that's probably my favorite. Um, but imagine, you know, they they were kind of short-legged. I mean, they they just guzzled gas had that r2800 pratt and whitney engine that was i think 2300 horsepower turbo supercharged they just drank a lot of fuel and imagine both being a fighter pilot or a bomber pilot and you're crossing over into germany Mm -hmm. and you look off to your left and your right and you see those p-47s turning around to go back because they're and they knew exactly where they had to turn around. These guys were smart, well-trained, the consummate professionals. They knew right where they had to turn around. And guess who else knew where they had to turn around? The 109 and the 190 pilots. The pilots who, in, in radio terms, we would say back-timed. <laughs> they, okay, the base is here. They're going to fly to here, and they're going to have to fly out. So we're going to do the backwards math, and we'll just uh, meet the uh, bombers just about two miles after they had to turn it back and uh, sure. cut them off. Imagine, and I've read memoirs of, of uh, Thunderbolt pilots who said, you know, it just it just broke our hearts, but we didn't have a choice. Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody knew that, okay, at, at, this, at, at this waypoint, we have to turn back or we're not going to have enough fuel. And let's be honest, it's 1941, 1942, 43, 44, 45. Um, the weather predictions and the ability to measure wind gusts isn't what it is where today I can go on uh, weatherbug.com and get a pretty damn accurate reading of what the wind is going to be all day. And so their mileage they can travel, though they had a pretty damn good dead reckoning, if you will, mm-hmm. that wind changes, they get a heavier gust than they anticipated, their gas mileage gets cut down. So their, their turnaround time may get cut down by five minutes, which five minutes don't sound like a lot. But as you learn from watching 12 o'clock high, when they had that bad three minute run, a lot of, a lot of shit can happen in three minutes. Oh yeah. Um, that was another thing. I was happy. I read the wing and the prayer. Here's a fun game. Go on Google. Oh, maybe I can change this a little bit. Okay. Here's a fun game. Go on Google and type in world war two bomb group flare color codes. Nothing comes up. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, reading Wing and a Prayer, I learned that when you have a wounded man on board, you sh- I never knew B-17s shot flares out of their roofs, and you shoot two red flares, indicate you had wounded on board. Yes. And if I wouldn't have read that book, I wouldn't have understood that in the very beginning, opening scene at 12 o'clock high, which I loved, by the way. Now, 
I have like five minutes left, so I haven't seen the very, very ending of it. But I love in the beginning <laughs> when he ride, he he sees the mug that you'd learn about in an antique store, and he rides to the airfield because he's there yes. in 1947. Then all of a sudden, it transitions back to 1942. You see a guy standing on Jeep, and you see a 17 coming in, and of course it's in black and white, so you don't know the color, but I do because of the book. You see two flares coming out, and you see him shoot a, a confirmation flare, and the next thing you know, an ambulance is pulling up. So those must have been two red flares. But I know there was a yellow-green, which meant something, a red-green. And so there was actually different color codes of flares that they would shoot from these B-17s to indicate to those around them the status of their equipment without using radio waves. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was a, another cool thing I, I learned about both the movie and the book. Let me ask you this. It's a little confusing. So I'm reading this book, Winging a Prayer, and on page, oh, there goes my cover, I'm going to definitely take it back on. On page 225, um, Harry's talking about how he got um, kind of, as his reputation and his um, rank grew, he got sent over to Oxford College to sit in on a brain trust because they were of allies. And one of the key things they were trying to figure out is, how do we make the English feel better about what we're doing to their young ladies? <laughs> the big problem <laughs> with the allies was how much the air guys get paid and the average base model flight crew got paid more daily than like the British generals did. They felt salty about that. And mm-hmm. they also felt salty about the amount of uh, young British women getting impregnated by our men. And so one of the things that this Oxford college brain trust was to try to figure out how to, to, make it a little nicer and, and make people understand but there's this paragraph in here i'm not gonna read the whole thing so he said okay. the purpose the purpose of this conference was not to come up with some kind of plans for solutions but to encounter to encourage an increased understanding among ourselves because we're in key positions of our commands it was hoped that we might eventually contribute to making improvements because i operated at a very low military level I had no idea of the jockeying going on in the ETO among the brass. I did not know the rivalry between Montgomery and Eisenhower. And this next part's a little confusing to me because I'm trying to do some Googling. I did not know that until the United States Army Air Corps became the U.S. Air Force, it suffered in disputes with the Royal Air Force about daylight versus nighttime bombing, Mm -hmm. bomber escorts versus attack bombing, and so on. Now, the reason I say this confuses me is he's at Oxford in the middle of this war. I'm guessing by this point in time, it's 1943, 1944. And he's talking about it wasn't until the Army Air Corps became the U.S. Army Air Force that the British started letting them have say in things. Mm-hmm. But when I Google it, according to Google and all these websites, June 20th, 1941... It was the official birth of the United States Air Force. So how was the Army Air Corps having problems with getting a foot in the door or getting requests or listened to amongst these bombing raid plannings between nighttime and daytime in 1943 if they had already turned into the Air Force in 1941? 
Maybe the birth of the Air Force was in 41, but they hadn't converted. I, and, I, and, you know, and you always hear the phrase Army Air Corps all throughout the World War II, so I don't know when the, the official transition took place. I thought it was, yeah, I thought that, I thought that came later than 41. Well, I, I did some Googling, too, and it said the first, uh, the first air run of the Army Air Force was on July 4th, 1944, I think? 1942? Yeah, I thought it was sometime in 44. Let's see. The first um, bomb, the first bomb run of the U.S. Air Force. I don't know why it's not coming up because I just Googled this. Um, but yeah. Well, while you're... While you're trying to churn that up, so I think the question speaks. If if I'm on your wavelength here, Don, the, the the question speaks to: Are you saying why did the Air Corps or Air Force have trouble levying strategic say so vis-a-vis the British? Well, it he I just you know that's all that that's all it said. I just read it verbatim out of there. I think I took mm-hmm. my bookmark out. Well, you had, you know, so it sounded again, to me like they they almost treated the Army Air Corps as a redheaded stepchild because they weren't their own branch with their own officers. And until what that paragraph I just read, it it seems like the British didn't give them their just desserts or their just um, say so until they had a name change. Is what he made it sound like, which is weird to me. I I would well, I would say this on that and and. I'll feel better on that after I've read more of this book, because like I said, the first Air Corps book I've read in a while. But my own gut feeling is that it had less to do with that and more to do with the fact that, you know, early on, the British were used to, you know, it had been their fight for so long. And then we show up, and I think, naturally you know we're bringing more beans and bombs and bullets and gasoline Mm -hmm. than anything they're putting up so naturally our guys start to feel like well okay we've got just as many of our people you know with their head in the noose as your people so you know we need to start having a little more say so in strategic decisions and planning um i mean certainly by the time you get to the continental invasion you know by, by you know the late spring of 44 leading into Obviously, the culmination being June of 44 with D-Day. You know, by then, the British had to understand, okay, the Americans are really, they're really writing a lot of the checks here. We we have to kind of back off and let them have more strategic say-so than maybe we have been. Now, in 43, that perhaps wasn't going on as much because really, if you think about it, you know, was it late 42, early 43 when we start, well, it was earlier in 42 and we start i mean think about there it. there we the go today in world war ii july 4th 1942 hold on just saw it control f air okay the first official u.s eighth air force operation six u.s crew joined the raf crew flying blah 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 so july 42 yeah yeah so that's when our i mean those are the first americans to really take it to the enemy yeah. Right. And so it probably just not out of hubris or any desire to not be a good ally, but it just it probably just was kind of a natural process that the British are, are a little bit reluctant to start 
handing the reins of power over, you know, it was going to, I mean, it just reached critical mass. It was always going to happen just because, like I said, we're putting more material. We're writing the checks for this stuff. Not that the British weren't doing their part. I'm in no way implying. Well, no, they've been fighting since 1939. So exactly. So they've been, they're the veterans and here comes this new group of kids from the United States wanting to, wanting to play, but you know, it took you guys long enough to get here. You know, but that, but they, that, that's all part of the machinations, Mm -hmm. the, the internecine struggles of having an ally and how do you work these things out? And they, you know, and, and it was an alliance that worked beautifully. I mean, James Holland, who is British, a very good friend of mine, speaks about this a lot. And there is no greater admirer of the United States military effort in World War II and, and, and our equipment and what we did and how we aligned with them, you know, in that united purpose of taking down Hitler. There's no, no greater admirer than him. Um and Al Murray too, who's his co-host on on the We Have Ways podcast. But, um, you know, I think as in the early days of it, yeah, I mean, I'm the Americans probably felt like, look, our guys are up there in these B-17s, and you had, I think, Arthur Harris, Bomber Harris, they call him. I believe he was the head honcho on the British in British Bomber Command, and I may be wrong on that, but I, I believe Bomber Harris is what they called him. Um, but it was, it was Arthur Harris, I think was his name. And again, there were a lot of factors that went into this decision, but it, it, you know, the Americans wanted to do precision daylight bombing. Oh, good to see you again. Yeah. Until I turn green, then I turn it off. Cause I, my, my fear is that zoom will crash and then I'll lose your feed. So I'd rather not have a photo and have your sure. audio than risk it crashing. Sure. I need but, to replace that so machine. you got this. I was trying to develop a point there, um, and the video discussion got me distracted. What? So Bomber Harris, the Americans wanted to do precision daylight bombing, and Harris and the British wanted to do nighttime bombing. Yeah, they just hypothetically, like it's safer. It's yeah, harder for the flight gun to hit you when they can't see you. Exactly. They can't lead safer. you. And I mean, they, they had already, you know, kind of tasted the bitter end of, of the the dirty end of the stick on this experimenting with daylight bombing. But of course, you know, they're using the Halifax and the, um, their, the backbone of their bomber force was of course the Avro Lancaster, which is just a beautiful airplane. But, um, it, it was just a difference in philosophies, but it really, you know, the, when it, when it really got into a rhythm where we're sending B-17s and B-24s over, in our bomber streams by day. And then the British are picking it up at night when our guys are coming home and getting out of their gear and eating supper and going to bed so they can get up and go do it all again the next day. And it just really became this relentless pounding of the Reich. Mm-hmm. That was one of the other grievances on behalf of the British. They said uh, in that co- the conference he was talking about Oxford College that uh, whenever they went on a bombing mission and they're runways and their airports were socked in and they had to land at the American air forces. They were perturbed about the quality of food that the American pilots got compared to the, the gruel they were eating back at their own base. And I don't know if you guys get paid more than us. They're getting, not only they're getting our women, but they're getting better food too. Well, overpaid, oversexed. And over here. Yep. 
you know, that was that was the 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 gripe, the yeah. one line gripe. But An- another back to twelve o'clock high, and I'm so and I'm sure the um, obviously a lot of the source material came from the book and the book from the pilot who served, and I'm sure this was probably one of the questions bantered about in sort of a passive aggressive term or a mm-hmm. uh, annoyed term was. Oh, this mission's going to be maximum effort. Well, what the hell do you think we did yesterday? And so the throughput theme to 12 o'clock high of the movie, I'm sure the book is, what is maximum effort? Yeah. And that question was raised at the beginning. Implicated and throughout the middle. And then finally, yes, I know I haven't seen a movie until 200, you know, two hours ago. And I'm sure there's other people, but I'm going to give you a spoiler alert on a movie that's great in 1949. Um, there's a point where one of the main people in this movie kind of suffers some PTSD. And this particular person, his whole thing was maximum effort. We got to see how much the men can give and how much they can take and bravado, bravado, bravado. Don't be yellow. Kind of think of an Those air core version. Of, be, think of an air core version of Patton. And finally he experienced what maximum effort was to him and his bravado left him cold on the runway. And I think that was a great way to kind of, they kind of said, well, I guess he had his maximum effort. And the irony that the person it happened to was kind of the one that much like Pat slapping people in hospitals, you know, Oh, I think there was line panel men. Um, what's that yellow crap they put on him to get like cuts. Um, oh, oh, um, I done. Yeah, he's like paint him and I die and tell him the good yeah. fly. That was his old slogan. Mark him fit for duty. Yeah, paint him an iodine and mark him fit. And and I thought that was great. No. Oh. I'm looking at our yeah. YouTube live stream. I think it crashed too. Oh, there you're back. So yeah, um, I strongly recommend 12 o'clock high. Here's a fun thing we do. Let's get on the old Rotten Tomatoes. What do you think Rotten Tomatoes gives the old 12 o'clock high with Gregory Peck? I would hope pretty I would hope pretty good. The overall critic score, 96%. Oh, hell yeah. That's fantastic. But that's only out of 25 reviews. Uh-huh. Now, I'm sure most of those reviews were from the 40s. I'm sure probably no one's really reviewed it in the recent years because that's how Rotten uh-huh. Tomatoes get works. They find every historical review ever given on a movie, and that goes into the count. But audience score out of 5,000 plus, 87%. That's still pretty strong. That's strong considering, as I said earlier, in modern day times where every single movie you go to the theater and see, there's action within five minutes and 38 seconds of the opening credits. The fact that this movie, you don't see any real action until like minute 142. That's yeah. saying a lot. And, um, and yeah. people definitely had a long, a, a, a bigger, thicker, longer um, attention span. Hey, can I? That's a good point. Can I just... Real yep. quick soundbite here. Read a paragraph sure. from from uh, Big Week. Yep. I just I just picked one out here, man. Let's uh, yeah. Let's just quick uh, quick dive into this. Uh, nonetheless, eventually they spotted the bombers below them. The three squadrons of the three fifty fourth fighter group had just begun deploying themselves when a voice crackled over the RT. My God, they're Germans coming up in droves beneath the bombers. That was precisely what had been hoped. Glancing down, Dick Turner saw both ME-110s and 109s climbing together like a swarm of insects, albeit still some 10,000 feet beneath the bombers. That was good because it meant the P-51s could dive down on them with a crucial advantage of height and speed. 
All that was missing was having the sun behind them. Go down and get the bastards, Turner heard in his headset. It sounded like Major Jim Howard, so Turner did as ordered and flipped over, pushed the stick forward, and dived. Down they hurtled, all 12 of Howard's 356 fighter squadron, each pilot lining up a target. Turner sped towards a gaggle of ME-110s, diving down with Frank O'Connor on his wing. As they neared the lumbering Zestura destroyers, split their flight in half, one element heading northeast and the other to the northwest. With O'Connor turning towards the latter group, Turner tore towards those moving northeast, latching onto one, pulling up underneath so that his 650 caliber machine guns were aiming at its underside. In a climbing attack at 8 o'clock, slightly to the port side of the twin-engine Messerschmitt, he opened fire and felt the Mustang judder with the recoil. Turner clearly saw sparks flare across the enemy aircraft as his bullet struck, then flames rapidly engulfed the Messerschmitt. Still climbing, Turner sped past at an angle, drawing up underneath a second Messerschmitt and seeing another row of strikes tear across the port wing all the way to the fuselage. Definitely put you in the cockpit reading that. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. And I jumped ahead to read that. I just wanted to dive in and give somebody like, here's a quick sound bite. Here's a little action, you know. Absolutely. Um, We usually do at the top of the show, but um, we changed things up a little bit. We're going to do a quick mail call. Do you have that email in front of you? Yes, I do. Let me... And if you, we want to hear from everybody, so email us while Henry's getting us together. Email us at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. I think this gentleman actually found the RSS stream for the podcast and actually used the email address we have listed for the Digital 410 Productions because it came through that email. That's how that's how uh, driven this guy was to track us down. Um, cool. So we want to hear from you, and we want to hear if you are an Army Air Corps expert you can help us out with our question of when exactly did they transition from the title into Air Force and Air Corps and um, provide us some of the information. And we also want to hear from everybody. We want yeah, to hear. We love hearing your emails. We let us know what you think about the. Uh, go ahead. Okay. So this is forward to Mr. Sledge um, from Eric Gall, G O H L. Eric, thank you for this. So this was sent Saturday, January 14th. 2023, 4.16 p.m. Subject to Mr. Sledge. Good afternoon, sir. My name is Eric Gall, and I would like to thank you and your family for continuing the legacy of your father. I'm a Marine Corps veteran myself, enlisting at 18 years old back in 2012 and calling it a day in 2017 as an 0311 rifleman with Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines. As I'm sure you are aware, it's the same company battalion regiment as Robert Leckie, prior to Bougainville and his trip to the brig, and same battalion regiment as Sid Phillips. It was an honor to serve in a historic unit with books written by former 2-1 World War II veterans to instill unit pride and belonging. I'm sharing with you this information as gratitude towards your family. Your father's story, Sid Phillips, Robert Leckie, John Bassalone, R.V. Bergen, and every Marine's story from the Pacific Theater was the reason why I joined out of high school. I can't tell you the amount of times I've watched the Pacific prior to going to Paris Island. It was one of the main influential works that inspired me, as well as your father's memoir with the old breed. Although World War II was well before my time, 
I feel a special connection to those men and have always found ways to meet and thank them. Last night at the firehouse, I'm firefighter with the city of Charleston in South Carolina. I was cooking for the guys and listening to a podcast you did called the World War II Podcast with Angus Wallace. I actually, Don, it was actually exactly a year ago when I did that episode. Nice. Um, so the World War II Podcast with Angus Wallace, which inspired me to track down a way to contact you. Since I only have basic LinkedIn and not premium, I found this to be the easiest way to send a message. To wrap this long-winded message up, thank you, sir. P.S. I've attached a few photos of my book collection that are directly above the Marine or directly about the Marine Corps during World War II, with some I've read many times over, as well as two framed art prints that my wife got me some years ago as a gift. Sincerely, Eric Gold. If I mispronounce your name, Eric, please forgive me. Um, but we love to read. Thank you for that, Eric. That's a beautiful email. I'm glad. Uh, it's it's edifying to me. He's got a picture of his book collection, and there's with the old breed, along with some other great classics like Helmet for My Pillow, um, and You'll Be Sorry by Sid Phillips. And it means a lot to me when people, when our listeners reach out to us like that. And, you know, hell, man, just to know that we're touching somebody in a positive way, Don. I mean, I know, I know it's edifying to you. It, it is to me. Um, it, so yeah, thank it you so is, much. but what never occurred to me, we all know how top gun had such a impact on Navy recruitment when that came out. I, we've been doing this show for five years now and you've been part of it. I think three, maybe three and a half. I lost count. No, no, just, just a little year and a half. Really? Seems longer than that. Uh, in a good way. How do I take that? In a good way. But what I'm getting to is it never occurred to me the recruitment tool that that miniseries could have been or would have been. I guess because to me, by the time it came out, I personally was too old to enlist. It never right. occurred to me that up-and-comer high school kids would be watching that movie and that would be their top gun. It never occurred to me until he, read, until he pointed that out. And even Definitely. prior to that miniseries – it makes you wonder how many people enlisted because they read your dad's book, whether it's in 1985, 1992. There have been quite a few. I mean, a lot of people have reached out to my family and, and said that. I, I will say this. If my father were still alive, he would be just, to use the term, gobsmacked. <laughs> he would be gobsmacked by that, Don, because, I mean, he, you know, he looked at it like he wrote, with the old breeze, a cathartic experience, which I've, I've talked about that many times. I don't want to just plow up ground up uh, before, but I, to, for him, the notion that someone read his book and that made them want to go join the Marine Corps, I mean, he would be honored by that. I need to say that first and foremost, but it would, it would be it just, I think he would think, man, after I described what I went through and somebody, why would, would anybody want to go through that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and I say that with, total respect to the people who did it you know i'm not quite i'm i'm honored by them doing that it's just i, I know my my father would probably you know um he would be honored but he would be surprised too and, and same thing with the pacific i mean they you know as we've talked about also um i've been on many podcasts where we we talk about the pacific and some of them with eric or with bruce mckenna and you know 
Band of Brothers had that more jingoistic, lighter-hearted feel to it. Mm-hmm. Pacific was a lot darker, exploring the themes of the individual cost of war and the emotional. Yeah, no one ever. It to- never, no one ever saw a paratrooper running out of a cave with his pants down, being chased by a crowd while he's diarrhea all over himself. Yeah, yeah. Damn, Jay, it's not coming out your mouth; it's coming out your ass. Leave the trail. Know? Damn, Jay, you look like you in a sack race. You know, my son loves that scene. Oh. Um, Let me ask you this since we're on the topic again. Um, right. I, I know people want to know. Last episode, your father sitting under that tree on your dad's property with his early John Lennon glasses on. No, oh, Eugene, you look like a gangster with those glasses on. And he looks at your grandmother and says, I will never wear that uniform again. Did he ever wear that uniform again? No, he told that to Sid when he was at the uh, at the ball. No, he, well, Did he no, ever he wear the uniform? Edward. Did he ever wear the uniform again? Um, that you know of? Actually, I don't think he did. You know, I, and I've I've probably talked about this. Don, I had we had his dress blues in the downstairs closet when I was growing up. Um, I, I used to always think it was so badass to pull those things out and look at him. You know, and had his 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 combat ribbon or his battle stars from Petaluma and Okinawa and his his you know his corporal stripes and you know um that was just now the, his dress blues are at Auburn now and I hope to retrieve them uh, either for my own self if I ever get a World War II room built or to, to install them enshrine them in the World War II Museum in New Orleans uh but I don't to stick to your question and not go down rabbit holes I don't think he ever did wear the uniform again but it was not, I mean, God knows he was proud of his Marine Corps service and, a, and fiercely passionate about the esprit de corps of, of the Marines and, and so proud of having served with him. It, you know, it was, none of this was a self-recriminatory, you know, kind of thing. And I think people who've read his book, I think people get that, but yeah. I think they understand that for what it, it was. But um, I don't think he did wear it again. Good answer. Um, I don't have the camera. I don't know why I keep showing my. I keep holding stuff off the camera. And I have not on. Um, I sent you and Jeff a picture when I was reading the Longest Winter. They made reference to John S. D. Eisenhower's book, The Bitter Woods. Bitter Woods. Of and course. so that came in the mail. Okay. I haven't even checked the. I haven't even checked the. Uh, oh, that's kind of sad. I just opened up the cover and it says "Merry Christmas." Blank and blank scribbled out with a black marker from blank. So this was a Christmas present to somebody at some point, and they scribbled out their name and who it's from. Maybe it's from an ex-girlfriend. Got to get this off the bookshelf. Nah. Uh, first publishing, 1970. Uh, this is, okay, 1969. Um, so this is a 1970 publishing of it. Yeah, but apparently it used to be someone's Christmas present, and they got rid of it. But that's what I will be reading. I'm currently reading, as we said before, Wing and a Prayer. Um, but what are you reading, sir? Well, I'm reading the James Holland Big Week. I just finished Company Commander um, by Charles B. McDonald, which we talked about last week. So I'm I'm about 37 pages into James Holland's Big Week. Perfect. Um, I'm going to read one more story before we wrap it up. Before I read that story, though, I just want to say thank everybody for the continued support of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Um, we're definitely growing. We're getting more information, more people reaching out to us, and uh, more follows on Instagram. Please head over to Instagram if you haven't done so already, or even Facebook, and look for the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Uh, we didn't. We launched our Instagram page kind of late. That was Jeff's idea. 
I just kind of did everything under my Instagram page. I have I had way too many social media pages to keep up with. I mean, for Pete's sake, I have five Facebook pages, and so I never really want to get on the Instagram hole. But we launched it. I don't know a couple months back. We're we're getting ready to hit 500 followers, so please head over to Instagram and uh, follow us. That's WTSP World War Two, and you can contact us there. You can uh, send us photos, and uh, we'll chances are we'll follow you back. But we want to thank everybody for your support, and please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You can find all of our information there. You can download shows there, see photos, emails from there, um, and there's a Patreon link. Click on it, sign up, subscribe. There's three different plans. The only one we care about is a dollar a month. There's a three dollar or seven fifty, whatever. Sign up for seven fifty after two months, you get a free T-shirt. But um, dollar a month will go a long way to help support what we do here. Henry and I did upload a a, a short edition, which by the way, we got some feedback from people love that. We're going to continue doing that. I think I'm going to start uploading little best of clips, stuff that you can't download off our page anymore because of storage space. I've had to take down, so we'll use that as a repository to repost some stuff that uh, give you a little extra thank you. Um, right now, if you remember, we're going to give you free stickers of the new logo. Uh, we actually started a sticker giveaway with the old logo, but we're taking a little longer because now I'm going to cut the new logos because we have the new logo. And um, But yeah, you can go a long way to help support the cause that way. And while you're on the page, head over to YouTube.com. You can watch our live streams or Henry plus my thumbnail and Henry's son in the background playing Call of Duty, it looks like. Um, you can watch that every, two, <laughs> every Monday um, on YouTube. But um, thank you guys so much. And here... I always find it interesting when there's modern-day World War II stories. And this came out of the AP back on the 11th, um, entitled, Polish officials say World War II trove of Jewish objects are a rare find. Lodz, Poland, a discovery in central Poland of hundreds of objects that were most likely hidden by their Jewish owners during World War II provide a rare and precious find, officials say on Wednesday. Around 400 items, including silver-plated menorahs, um, Hanukkah's tableware and daily use items were uncovered in the city of Lodz late last month during a reservation of a house and yard. Those residents who buried these items did so most likely thinking that one day they would return home and they would re- retrieve them. Lodz Deputy Mary Adam Poslick said, Most likely these people lost their lives in the Holocaust. Such stories are truly rare and precious and are also a great lesson for us all. These items were packed in a wooden box and wrapped in newspaper. It'd be interesting to see the uh, dates on those. Um, said the building inspector with the Warbud Construction Company, whose crews came across the uh, stash trove. Officials say the recovered objects will be transferred to the city's archaeology museum. Experts think the box was hidden early in early on in the war. Uh, the addresses where the objects were found at twenty three. Polonka Street were located just outside the perimeter of Litzen Mathis Ghetto. The occupying Nazi Germany established its Jewish quarter in Lodz in February of 1940, and until August of 1944, it held about 200,000 Jews from across Europe. Most died there in the concentration camps. A municipal investment administration official said that the items and their history stir, quote, emotions and deep thought about the fact that we are not alone and that we leave something behind, end quote. So it's a cool story to see, and um, I posted it on our Facebook page. You can see the photo. A lot of uh, candlesticks, like the said, menorah, a lot of silverware. And it's it's cool when this stuff happens because, one, you know, it tells a story, but, two, it's 
and especially, you know, we hear this all the time, Holocaust denier and this and that, and people saying certain things didn't happen. When people still digging up, you know, this stuff, or in the case of in the Pacific, when construction crews come out and they uncover bodies, it's just a reminder that, A, this history didn't happen all that long ago, and it's just a reminder that it truly did happen. This wasn't some figment imagination, you know, for all the people out there trying to say certain things didn't happen throughout history. Here's another reminder of 400 different pieces of silver hidden by some Jews running from the Nazis during 1940. Mm -hmm. And so if you guys want to see the photo and see the rest of that story, head over to WTSP on Facebook. I just posted that story. And I think it's going to wrap that up for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Um, I want to thank everybody for your continued support, as we said earlier. And um, that's going to wrap it up. And for myself, Jeff Copsetta, Mr. Henry Sledge, we will talk to everyone here again next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>